This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello, welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. We're a national nonprofit newsroom covering education at all levels. Many professors these days are struggling to connect with their students. First, the pandemic forced emergency remote learning, where instructors had fewer avenues to see and interact with students the way they were used to doing in person. This was symbolized by the many Zoom class sessions where most students had their cameras turned off, leaving professors wondering, is anyone really out there? Then the sudden rise of ChatGPT late last year left many college teachers wondering if the work that students are submitting flowed from their own minds or was just written by an AI bot. I see so many people so hungry, so disappointed. That's Bonnie Stahoviak, Dean of Teaching and Learning at Vanguard University of Southern California and host of the weekly podcast Teaching in Higher Ed. She's also a teaching columnist for EdSurge. I had a, a friend email me, can, I, can we get together and talk? I just... This person has shifted to have to do more asynchronous teaching. I just feel like I can't see them anymore. I don't know how they're experiencing their education. And that, I mean, I definitely see that. That is not unique to that individual. I see that as a real challenge for so many. When I talked to Stahoviak for the EdSurge podcast at the start of the COVID pandemic, her advice on how college professors could adapt to the sudden move to online learning became one of our most popular episodes ever. It's now three years later, and I decided to check back in with this teaching expert. I started by asking her what she sees as the biggest challenges in college teaching at this moment. I'm going to see three threads here in terms of what I see happening. One thing I see happening a lot is us ignoring things not wanting to really name them and state them. I think about I was able to speak to someone who teaches within the University of California system. And they have a special program that allows them to help people who are caregivers. There are a lot more people who are caregivers than I ever realized and just thinking of all those added stresses. And so I went to their website, I was kind of catching up on that episode that had aired a while back. And they had made a COVID compassion quilt and had invited all the students and others in their community to share a, a, a square of the quilt for people that had lost people. And I just, I'm not hearing enough of that, of allowing people an opportunity to name some of the pain and the grief. And I do... The, we, we know that's not really healthy in terms of fostering good mental health is when we try to cover things up. So that's one thing I see is really a, a sense of not people sometimes feeling free or perhaps self-aware enough to be able to name some of these these areas of grief. That, of course, leads to the second thing, which is just around mental health. I've seen it 
everywhere and lots of emphasis on student mental health. I don't hear quite as much about an emphasis on faculty and staff mental health and and some of that. So that that would be a sort of a second thread of where we are. And the last thread that I see, I would broadly characterize as presence, that there are so many wonderful educators who would like to have a sense of presence, being in community, and don't know how to do that any longer. I would even question if perhaps that was happening all along, (laughs) but certainly some of the tools that we used to rely on or the gauges that we used to rely on not being effective measures of how present are we for each other? How can I have a sense of presence in fostering this learning community? And presence, where do you mean? In the classroom, in the students' lives beyond that? What do you mean? Well, that's interesting that you would say that because I think part of the problem is that for so many, the classroom was the only way we ever knew to attempt that, to both show up with presence and and to foster something. And we don't know how to do it any other way. But now, both by necessity as well as by real preference, needing to think differently about what does it mean to be present One big example of that would be we tend to think in terms of when you are there, and I'm I'm putting up air quotes, which isn't great for podcasting, but when you are there. She's putting up the fingers of air quotes. Yes, we, we, we could look at our watches and we are there in that time and space. We forget that when we try to engage in different ways, We are there for that person in the moment when they engage, if that makes any sense at all. So if I were to send you a text message and wish you a happy birthday and, you know, ask how you're doing, you might be in the middle of a meeting, have set your messages to do not disturb. But then when you look at it, I am wishing you a happy birthday and checking in with how you are in the moment in which you look at it. And I think we sort of forget that it tends to be where some people that are used to communicating, not in that level of immediacy, that is a fluency that they have. But I just think I see so many people so hungry, so disappointed. I had I had a, a friend email me, can I can we get together and talk? I just, I, this person has shifted to have to do more asynchronous teaching. I just feel like I can't see them anymore. I don't know how they're experiencing their education. And that, I mean, I definitely see that. That is not unique to that individual. I see that as a real challenge for so many. Yeah, they can't, Why? so they can't see their students in the same way? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Because how do we translate? So much of the time it would be like, well, okay, so we're online, so I better give a quiz. We're online, so I better have them write a paper. Well, my gosh, Jeff, have someone write a paper. Well, that, you know, then now we're opening up a whole other thing in terms of artificial intelligence. Well, well, no, I had thought that person might write a paper, not that that person might type in a prompt to artificial intelligence and have that write it for them. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty much everywhere you turn, some of the ways in which we saw a sense of our meaning and our significance and our identity around work, where are you supposed to look to actually decide if what you're doing matters anymore? We did this three-part series on student disengagement. 
And one of the things that when I talked to Josh Eiler, who has been following these issues, at, 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 you know, being a, a teaching and learning fo- person like yourself, but he was saying that he's hearing that a lot of professors are leaving the profession earlier than they would have otherwise, or um, switching to something else, or retiring early in whatever way, because they just don't feel like it's it's that, that it's working what they're doing. Like their their students are not engaged in the same visible way they used to be, um, and after the pandemic, after things getting back to at least going back to the classroom. Um, and I, I've been really struck by that. I think it's really interesting, but it's also, you know, there's some, it sounds like a lot of sadness around it for a lot of faculty. Yeah. Sometimes it's sadness. Sometimes it's anger. I happen to think it's misplaced anger, but I don't want to ignore that it's not real and authentic and, it's, I still remember such a long time ago when I was uncovering some of the first times students cheating in a class, I w- was able to come across James Lang's book, Cheating Lessons. And he so beautifully articulates of, and, and he's, it's like he catches us in his, in his grasp without us even realizing. He's like, oh, do any of you ever drive on a freeway? And do you 100% of the time? follow the speed limit that is posted on the freeway. And Jeff, I don't know anyone. I'm sure someone exists in this world who does, but I don't know them. <laughs> so My dad you know, used like, to drive the speed limit more than most people. and We made fun of him a little bit. It was like, yeah, it's like nobody does it. Yeah. yeah I mean, I would even say I'm out here in California. It, it could even be unsafe because that would be so much slower than the flow of traffic. You could even say it's unsafe. So he would say like, well, that that is cheating. That it, that is against the law that you're, I mean, it's supposed to think, but then, well, that's different. But, but how is it exactly different? So, I mean, to, and part of, I think what's so helpful is to A, realize we all break the rules. It just kind of depends on which ones we think it makes sense to break <laughs> and that kind of thing. But the second thing that was really powerful, I take away from his work is it doesn't have to be about me. Because I literally thought, they're cheating on me. This is a direct front. I remember getting so angry. How dare you do this to me? Do you think I'm stupid? You know, that was a lot of the scripts that would run around. I feel so freed from that. So part of why with artificial intelligence, certainly I have gone through I'm even afraid to ever talk. I've had a number of episodes about it, but I still get terrified because it feels still so emergent that the second you say something about it, you might change your mind about it five minutes later. But what I'm glad I haven't had to go through, I haven't had to go on the ride of trying to catch students cheating and then thinking they're cheating on me. I don't have to go down that ride and it feels really free. There's a lot of rides that I can go down with with that. It's still something that we all need to be reflecting on its impact on us as individuals and also collective systems such as educational systems. But yeah. um, So So if it's not on you, then then what is the the advice from James Lang and what have you figured out that instead of taking it personally like that, well, I think so. One, we need to reject that. It, it it isn't personally. I don't. I don't know if you've ever read the book or or heard of it called The Four Agreements. No. Oh, it's a good one. one. Yeah. Uh, um, Don Miguel 
Lewis, you have, you have to look it up. I mean, it's so good. And and I, I'd love to be able to tell you what all four of the agreements are. <laughs> but the one that stands out more than anyone is don't ever take anything personally. And he talks about in the book, and it's so many times we take things personally, and they're not directed. But then he, he, of course, concedes, oh, sometimes it absolutely is personally, a personal attack, personally directed at you. It is still a choice to take it personally. And I, I may just carry that with me. So I, I choose to, I feel freed to choose to not put a lot of energy toward taking it personally. So then what it becomes about for me, and I've of course learned this from many of the same people you've talked to, including Josh Eiler, the big body of work that this next part is called is authentic assign, authentic assessment. So authentic assessment is, well, what is it that you're attempting to assess? And and a lot of that is, well, what would be the authentic context that someone might need to perform that? So a good example would be, I, I early on would think like, we never need to memorize everything. You don't need to, it's all in our phones. Well, no, because <laughs> a physician, for example, would you would want your physician to A, have a lot of things that they carry around in their body of knowledge, but also to be humble enough to use the technology to look up, for example, any drug complications, those kinds of things. You can't expect anyone to carry all that around in their head. A computer system is going to do that for you much better. So uh, authentic assessment, instead of only assessing in ways that we were assessed, that aren't really very authentic for achieving the kinds of goals that people might want to have. So a lot of it is that to me. I'll give you an example of that. I I know so many of us care about what's happening around misinformation and wanting to do our part to help people to be able to combat it. I really enjoy the work of Mike Caulfield. Mike Caulfield has a model called SIFT, which is an acronym where we can increase the likelihood of us being able to, as novices, simply and easily be able to do some checks to, again, increase that that likelihood that what we're reading is either true or false, our ability to do that through a simple series of steps. And so rather than have students write a paper about SIFT, I, you could go up to any artificial intelligence, go to chat GPT, what is Mike Caulfield's SIFT model and, and how should I use it or whatever, it will write you up a storm on that. I've not actually tried that particular prompt, but I am quite confident it would be able to generate something that could be submittable as a paper for an undergraduate as an example. Rather than that, I have students record themselves, show me you doing it. That is the context in which I want you to do it is while you're sitting in front of a device on your computer, on your phone, record yourself talking me through you doing it. And one thing that I love doing, this is this is going to sound like it's a trick and it so isn't. I find it amusing that the vast majority of students I teach do not know what the onion is. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what the onion is, that is a satirical website. And so that is used that to is, be a huge part of my reading diet, of course. Like, it, yeah, it was yeah. like this big cultural phenomenon. Um, I guess I thought it still was too, but you're saying they don't know it? 
They don't know it. So I will have them go and do SIF. This is when they're about 80% through this module. I mean, they, they've been at this for weeks doing little practice vocabulary here. They're going through the lessons that he's created. As we get toward the end, it's that authentic assessment. Now I have them pull up a story. It happens to be a story. And of course, it's satirical. An Amazon worker has been working for 3,000 years. And they, it's, I mean, it's, it's silliness to the absurd. And what the more novice, less practiced student will do, it doesn't happen often. That's why I celebrate this because I saw it happen. And if the novice will say, I should Google Amazon worker works for 3,000 years. What I'm hoping they will do is realize this is satire, even if it wasn't, by the way, to not copy the exact headline. But what is the claim that's being made here? So most of them, by the time they get 80% of the way through, can go, I know I can go look up on Wikipedia what is the onion. They know what satire is. They, they, they have you know, been introduced. It's quick, too, by the way. It's amazing. That's what brings me so much hope to if people are equipped with these very simple tools rather than, you know, passing on the garbage, sometimes the stuff that's intentionally attempting to wreck democracies in the world, then rather than doing that, these quick checks. So I see them, again, most of them will get to the point where they go, okay, I don't know the onion. I've never heard of that before. Okay. Oh, that's satire. Okay. They're not literally saying this guy worked for 3000 years. Hmm. Oh, there's something in here. Is it about unions? Because some of the Amazon places are starting to, and they're they're starting to tie in. We do watch a documentary about an auto manufacturing plant and their attempts. It was a Chinese owned. It's a fascinating movie because the U.S. based companies would not give access to their plants, but a Chinese company would, which floors me. So it brings in all these things. They have learned a little bit about unions. Oh. Oh, I heard Amazon's trying to... So labor issues at Amazon, they're able to just go and do that, but they're showing me. It's marvelous. I can't tell you the joy that it brings me to have them to actually watch them on their faces where they go, oh, satire. Oh, I remember what that... Oh, yeah. And just, it's so fun. And we don't do that enough. We don't do that enough. Um, There's not enough ways in which I think we have creatively expanded our imagination for how to make that assessment more authentic. But by the way, in whatever discipline it is that you're in, if you go and start doing searches around authentic assessment in your discipline, higher education, I mean, there is a gold mine. (laughs) Uh, But I, I hope that it just becomes completely normal that that's a that's a body of work that pretty much anyone in higher education is aware of, so that we're just continually sparking ideas and getting better at it. Unfortunately, what I see too much happening right now is, oh, gosh, there's this new technology, this new thing, a new way to cheat. The answer is to catch the cheaters. That's not the answer for a whole bunch of reasons, including that I think it is really detrimental to all of what education is supposed to be about if your sole purpose in life is to catch a cheater, you're in the wrong job. After the break, why this teaching expert thinks that many people these days are asking the wrong kinds of questions about AI, the metaverse, and other new technologies in education. Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, 
and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students, to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isteconference.org. Well, okay, I let's jump back in. I want to say, so for me, like so much of what you said, it, it just, you know, resonates with people. The word authentic is huge there. Mm-hmm. Also, just this sense of the meaning of what, of the of the teaching work at college, like finding it does it does it all make a difference? And I do feel like that seems a bit shaken um, by a lot of the different trends, like being back after COVID. So. You know, I'm hearing that some students feel like I was able to teach myself with, you know, whatever I found when the pandemic was on and I couldn't get to my professor to ask or whatever reason. And now I'm just going to keep doing that. Or like, I don't need to show up for lectures. So I've heard from some students. Um, and and then also a sense, so a sense of a disconnect on on both sides of, of like, of, of sort of something lost there. And then there, yes, there are questions about was it ever there? But I feel like some pe- people feel like from students and professors I'm talking to that it's different. Something is different. And then the chat GPT on top of that, where you're telling me I can't tell if it's human or robot. I think that the timing couldn't be worse. Right. Um, of that. Oh yeah. I, I think too, that we have to, another big theme is I, I see in both myself and in the areas I feel like I influence, we've got to continue to teach ourselves not to think in dichotomous terms. So the answer is not entirely in artificial intelligence, but it's also not entirely acting as if it doesn't exist. So when it first started to become really, really popular late 2022, where, I mean, when ChatGPT was released, all that, I mean, it was <laughs> six and a half months ago. Yeah. I have since read a book, which I would recommend, The Alignment Problem by Brian Christian. Uh, He looks at a history of machine learning, artificial intelligence, all all these things. And I I certainly had no appreciation for how much it already was around me. I I just, I didn't think of of that. And and, and from my, my still layperson's understanding it really is not just clearly it is or it isn't. There's kind of like, well, it kind of is, but it's kind of not on some of these tools that we use. But I think trying to put our heads in the sand and say, we're not going to be any part of artificial intelligence, you probably already are. I don't know. Do you have pictures on your phone? I don't know. If you use an iPhone, for example, which is about 70% of cell phone users last time I look, guess what? You're using artificial intelligence because when you go up there and you're searching for somebody, it's machine learning that's helping you find that picture of your dog or, you know, whatever. So it's, we can't just hide from it. 
but we also can't go all the way in and go, this is the answer. I mean, there's there's some real ethical questions. I, I mean, I, I'm constantly sort of changing my mind about it. I think that's probably a good thing, because if I was so sad, that would mean I'm not learning anymore. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. We have been through so much collectively. And there is no way out in the sense that we cannot be saved now. We can't just put a line in the sand and say, it's over, whatever it is, you know, racism, it's over. Social inequities, they're over. Like we still are facing some real, real, as they say, wicked problems. And so the answer isn't some easy quick fix kind of a cure. These are systemic issues. I I love getting to still be a part of doing my best feeble to approach to help equip people because it it isn't going to be me saving the day. I mean, we, we get the privilege of being able to teach incredible people and build these communities. And I feel filled with hope when I am teaching and when I'm learning. I mean, when those two things are combined. Yeah, we um, recently noted that about a year ago, um, the metaverse was all the discussion. And even that, you know, like Facebook just changed its name to Meta. And then they all the the, there was talk of, well, maybe that'll sweep in education. Of course, we did some podcast episodes about that here. But now I just can't really hear much about that. I don't know. There's not much out there that I'm hearing of excitement in a big way. I mean, there's still, I'm sure, people doing it and experimenting but i'm i've been wondering like why and i i've been wondering why and i kind of wonder is there is there something about what the metaverse can possibly do of helping kind of visualize with visual cues help us feel more connected that maybe we're discovering isn't the point or you know i guess i've been trying to figure out what is what does it mean that it's not um, been glommed onto and in in or caught on in education, um, or maybe it doesn't. Do you have any thoughts on like why we're not talking about that anymore? Yeah on on June on June the fifth, Apple. I, this is, I laugh because in our family, Jeff, this is like a holiday for us. <laughs> is is we watched the Apple. WWDC keynote, that's Worldwide Developer Conference. And at that conference, they released their, they don't even like to place this label on it. But for people who understand these words, it's a more augmented reality headset. So it's called the Apple Vision Pro. The reason I bring it up is we are as a family do tend to be pretty fascinated by these things. But they were very particular as marketers, you could tell in every shot that they would do, that Yes, you are wearing this thing, but you are also still able to quickly be present where you are. And they have this thing which does sound a bit like the Black Mirror episodes, which I never saw. I just heard so much. I feel like I could make that reference. Same here. Yeah, you, I, we we both should sit together and watch those sometime. Yeah, we should. I mean, because there are so many references. So many education. references. Yeah. Yeah. So the glasses we've seen, I mean, the the metaverse, the their version of that, you're just looking at a person wearing a headset with plastic. All you see is plastic. And in this case, what you're seeing is not the person's eyes, but a facsimile of the person's eyes, which feels very... Yeah, they project eyes mirror. forward. Yes. Yes. Yes, I which, read about that. Again, kind of like, ew, a little, a little bit. However... What that tells me 
is that their research has shown them how much we wish to still be able to be present. And in the demos, examples that they had, picture that you'd have these screens in front of you and, and you know, amazing how you could sort of arrange them just with a tap or a flick of a finger even. Or, I mean, even they're tracking your eyes and so where you look, it, it's able to see that. But they show someone come in and hand a card to someone. It looks about the size of a credit card. I don't know the significance of it. But the there is an actual person in the room reaching through these screens and handing them a card because they very much intentionally wanted to position themselves away from the metaverse, which is kind of like, yes, you're in this whole world off by yourselves. And I feel like that's emblematic of so much of the challenge. We see in this dichotomous way, we are either sitting in a classroom together and I can see you, but yeah, you had to drive through rush hour traffic and take a train, you know, take a bus, 13 different different routes and what have you, just to be able to sit there. And that's not realistic for all of the challenges that, that people have to go through in order to attain their education. But yet that feeling, if I am sitting in wherever it is I live or, or sitting in a coffee shop somewhere and accessing their Wi-Fi, that I'm not really there either. So never really getting to feel what it is like to be in community And part of that, I think, is losing all sense of what it is to be in community and all of the different ways that that can take place. And and rather than just thinking of it as we're in person or we're asynchronous, online, impersonal, not authentic, like that, those are not really helpful dichotomies for the best of what education has to offer. And I think that board best maybe is not a great one to use because that's part of the thing is we, we've looked at this for so many decades now. Good, bad, online, in person, like like these, these that's not really how it works. Well, maybe to be effective, right? To, to get to effectiveness, whatever that yeah. means. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing that I've felt really gra- glad about getting to talk to people like Josh Eiler and, and James Lang and so many others is that. I don't take myself that seriously. I used to really take myself way too seriously. I still remember at TA, this was probably my third or fourth year in teaching. I was so stressed out because I had a class on a Friday. It was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I think it was like a Friday 8 a.m. class. And I was going to be gone. I think I was at a a conference or something like that. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I could get a guest speaker to come. But I just, it's weird because I've never had a guest speaker come without me there. And I don't know if that, I would really want that person. (laughs) I remember the TA looking at me and go, I'm going to need you to go back to what it was like when you were in college. A Friday 8 a.m. class. It would be okay if we just didn't have class that one time. (laughs) So I don't need to be the best class they've ever had. That's too much pressure to put on me and too much pressure to put on them. That's just not helpful. But I'd like it to be effective. I do think that's a great word, Jeff, to, to replace those kinds of things. And I'd like to meet them where they are and have them do the same. And that can take place. I I teach a little bit differently than is happening at most universities in that students really do get lots of choices around their, their, how they'd like to access the education. So predominantly, I'm teaching on 
synchronously on, on Zoom as far as the attendance component, what we would typically call attendance of participation. And that is at a scheduled time. But for people who cannot or choose to not be there, there's an attendance alternative that they go through an equivalent activity, but it's not identical, but it's equivalent. So, you know, when we're in person, it might be, hey, let's explore some ideas around this. And I've got this Padlet board, like a virtual cork board. And here's the four different lists that we've got. So I'd like you to add to the lists and share your thoughts around that. And then now we'd like to go through phase two and have you comment on three other people's that um, you see what what themes do you see crossing over across these areas? Well, someone can come in later that week, and go back to that same board. But theirs might be a little bit different, because they're not seeing it completely blank. So I'd like you to contribute. But then I also want you to go to this fifth column that they never saw. And then I want you to start, you know, so it's, it's just like, how do I design it so that it's a meaningful interaction that's designed with one person doing it versus designed with maybe 20 of us are there and we can actually talk and, you know, in that in that moment. And that's really harder for people to do. I, I can't. Oh, the reason I brought that up. They have complete choice. 100% of the students could never show up on Zoom. They, they would absolutely like through that through the whole class. And, and the numbers are remarkable how consistent they are. 70% of the class goes chooses to go all the way through, you know, coming to the to the Zoom synchronous sessions, 25, 30% choose to go entirely asynchronous. Mostly it is work schedules. We have people who need to have jobs in order to go to school. And, and that I'm in the afternoon time. So that would when they would need to be working. And then of the 70% who are showing up to all those Zooms, they're there about 70% of the time. It's I mean, it's for years, I've been doing it now, and you can pretty much set your watch to it. So they have entirely the ability to not show up, like you were talking about, you know, if they were experiencing it in high school. And what people tell me is that it's unlike what they experienced previously. And I think a lot of that is because it's that presence that we're showing up together. We're, I'm, not, I'm not just going to talk to you. If I was going to talk to you, it'd be a podcast. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> right? So this is what are the affordances that when we're together, we can make use of? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, how much do you think things are changing? And there's, you know, been talk for years about how, oh, teach, especially in college, like teachers should spend more time honing their teaching. It feels like one thing that happened during the pandemic is there was a bit of an awakening to, you know, reset teaching. Um, even if you just had to go try a different model and then come back to what you used to do and the awakening of, of, you know, to students needs in some ways that we're hearing, how much has teaching actually changed though? Can you, or, or is it kind of mostly going back and it's still edge cases that are, you know, going for spending a lot of time and effort on improving their teaching? My sense is that the very, very, what I would consider to be some of the most egregious things that really did not use the fundamental tools we ought to be using, are, are there's now greater accountability. I'll give you an example. This day and age, students need to be able to see where they stand in a class. They should not go through an entire 16-week semester 
and wonder what their grade is going to be. Because they've gotten no feedback, there's no grade book, there's no assignments. Now, there's lots of ways we might talk about this. I know that you've shared on on your show a lot about the ungrading movement. So that's not what I'm talking about. But even the ungrading movement, you can look in the syllabus and see how those grades will be entered into those systems. And it's hard for students to trust that because that's something they've never experienced before. But I'm talking about, I, I certainly have been aware that there would be faculty who literally, that was part of the thing. You turn in one midterm, you turn in a final, maybe a paper, you do not have any idea whether you passed or failed the class. So that's the kind of stuff I'm just seeing way, way less of. That, yeah, you need, you're going to need to be on the learning management system. There's going to need to be a grade book. And when you assign something, if there's a grade associated with it, they do need to be able to see that. And I'm just not, I'm, that I don't ever hear of. At the very minimum, universities around the world are claiming their values, naming them, and making attempts to try to better the experiences for historically marginalized populations in those spaces. So um, are we having a great awakening? I would say on tighter on policies like use your learning management system, you know, minimum communicating with students, that kind of thing is just I see a little bit more accountability. There was definitely and continues to be, uh, gosh, I just like to go back to, again, back to normal, back to back to whatever normal is. And some of that's powers and principalities. Some of that is, you know, we got to, okay, time to dust ourselves off. We're back now. And um, I, I'm fortunate in the sense of the university where I teach cares deeply about teaching, so I don't have to see it that much. And also am fortunate in that I get to talk to people from all over the world who just, this is their sense of mission. And not just an individual mission, but a collective mission for educators around the world. That is incredibly inspiring. So if I ever get depressed, I just go and <laughs> listen to one of your... By the way, I did get a chance to listen to that series that you're talking about. I mean, that's... Uh, I, I like it because you take us into a context... And it just feels like I'm there. It's really, you're a very gifted storyteller. So those are the, those are the things. Um, people are looking for that. They're looking for the feeling of challenge, and, but that there are other people working in solidarity. And no, this isn't easy, but we can do this. Don't give up. We can absolutely do this. Yeah, no, and, th- and thanks for, for listening and for that comment. But the, you know, I think the the trick is, it's, I, I hear you say, like, communicate the basic grade to students. I'm like, wow, that's a really low bar, considering I don't think either one of us have done an episode being, like, basics of, you know, communication with students. Because, you know, so many times we're thinking of big issues, like, let's rethink the grading system, <laughs> or, you know, any of the other things we talked about. But it, it is interesting that, you know, despite the trendy things that happen, there's still a need probably at all levels of teaching to just get the basics, which can actually be hard, even though um, they seem obvious to people have been doing it in a while. When I go back to some of the earliest conversations I had, whenever you roll out a podcast, generally the experts will recommend that you have a number in the queue. Most people don't start a podcast and they're like, okay, I'll just put the first one out. So I think we maybe had four or five 
of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast recorded, ready to go. And I, I look back, <laughs> some of them so silly, just like, oh, gosh, I know so much more now. Than, but I mean, how, could, how are you ever going to learn before you start on one of these journeys? But I kind of laugh at myself. But I'll give you an example from there. This is something that I learned very early, not even in teaching in higher education. I used to be in the computer training industry. And so this is something I learned way back then. It's called the eight second rule. And the eight second rule is basically you ask a question in a group of people and you count one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. And I'm not actually going to count to eight seconds, but it's a it long feels time. Like, yeah. Well, it feels like 17 minutes if you're the one doing it. And also it feels like a long time if you're the one in the class, but it's a good kind of pressure because if you asked a question, did you actually want an answer or was this rhetorical? I'm going to assume most of the time we would hope for an answer, but it feels so scary. No one's answering. There are crickets. I can, they're in my head. You know, I I could, but if you wait Each time you do that, it becomes lessened and you have basically trained yourself and trained them that every time you ask a question, you actually want an answer back. So that would be an example of something really, really basic, but that I had to reimagine for teaching predominantly on in a synchronous way on Zoom in this case, because eight seconds on Zoom, oh, (laughs) buckle up because You're going to be waiting even longer. But then it's so fun because you actually start to find your own social norms. That I mean, so much of the time I mentioned a friend wants to get together. So I'm feeling so discouraged. I can't see how they're experiencing their education. That just is going to keep running as a tape in my head until we have a chance to have a conversation because I know this is breaking her heart. And, And part of it, I literally cannot see them. The screen because their cameras are off. Or... I don't force them to turn it on. Sure, I wish they would because it's. I mean, sometimes it's nice to know that th- that is a familiar way of gauging something. But I, I also do not wish to control people in that way. There are lots of reasons why someone might want to have their camera off, and I just can't go down that path. So it's kind of fun because that's not going to be it. And in every class, it's a little something different. Sometimes I think no one's listening and then I'll say something that I consider to be so goofy and then someone will do the little tear um, laughing emoji and stuff. I mean, it's, oh my gosh, they're there, you know, they're, they're actually there. So it's, it's a challenge of how do I create a new way of perceiving that does not rely on really what was only a measure of civic, civic attention, So civic attention is I act like I am paying attention to. By the way, Jeff, I shouldn't even tell this on something that will go out to the masses. But I have been told I am excellent at civic attention. We've been sitting in interviews that are not going well. And this is, of course, 72 years ago. No one that's ever... (laughs) In fact, all of the people are no longer A fictional number of years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But I have friends who will just be like, you are amazing at being able to act like you're paying attention and you're told and like you're just like that's civic attention that's really all you could ever measure before but it just felt like they were paying attention you know what does that even mean right so it's certainly not a indicator of learning 
is certainly not an indicator of satisfaction. So that is the, the both the challenge, but also the opportunity. Because what did we have to do for so many of us, what that meant was going to a shared place where there's richer communication. So I learned the the I just ran the numbers the other day, the most listened to episode ever of teaching in higher ed is teaching effectively with Zoom. And it's with Dan Levy from Harvard. Well, yeah, I mean, global pandemic. I mean, <laughs> Zoom, like, these are all like, I couldn't have read a written a better search engine optimization and, you know, more power to him. He's an incredible educator. But um, he was the one who really taught me a lot of different ways to, okay, let's go into Google Slides. And then let's have group one, you're up here on slides two through six. And then group two, you're up here in slides this. And it's so wild to be able to see then in a new way, instead of watching your camera, or in case of a classroom, watching your eyeballs back to this virtual headset thing, you know, I don't even know if I'm really seeing what I think I'm seeing. Now I can actually catch these glimpses of what is in your mind, and what is in your heart, put out in a new way. And that, that by because by they're the typing way, into a, a document, yes. because you're getting their thoughts as in a real time, so to speak. Yes. And it's not always typing. Sometimes it's images. Sometimes it's, uh, I mean, it becomes limitless at that place. And that is just fascinating to me, because it's not just a person doing that. But it is sometimes groups of people. So I teach a class on personal leadership and productivity. And one of the things they learn is this framework for managing information and things that are coming at us. Basically, you picture like a filter almost, if you will. That's the best analogy I can come up with. But so I have a a slide where all of these terms are mixed up, almost picture slips of paper, because this is how I used to do it in a classroom. You get the envelope with the slips of paper, and then I'd give them a poster board kind of thing, and they had to create some sort of an analogy. So it's using, they've gone past memorization, and now they're taking these frameworks and having to bring them together in a new way. And then they have to apply an analogy and explain it to people. I mean, it's, it's adding, it's kind of like the Mike Caulfield thing I was talking about with the 80%. That so many times we never see that. And maybe if we see it, we see it on whatever a final project is. And by then it's too late to go, oh, the Amazon workers actually, that was satire and you forgot that you're sp- <laughs> like that. So I, I love that idea that I can see those glimpses. And again, it's not just the individual because they play off of each other. And a lot of times they don't want to talk, which I wish they would want to talk more. But again, my goal in life is not to control other people. My goal in life is to help foster learning in other people and be encouraging and challenging to other people, but not to try to control them. So how they communicate with each other a lot of times is what they, you know, decide to place there and how they do it and everything. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing to to see those things come to fruition. It's really, I, I don't want to go back then. Now when I'm in a classroom environment, I just got to present to 60 prospective students the other day. And it was kind of like, Oh, gosh, I don't have that. I really want them to all go to <laughs> Google Slides and do this thing. I was like, oh, well, they, you can't really do that's not really going to work with 60 of them. It's kind of fun, like, play with all these different affordances and see what works. But back to what I said earlier, what works with one group 
isn't necessarily going to work with the next group. So it's always just constant art and science of teaching and learning and a constant need to be reminding ourselves who we are, who we are in this work and why any of that matters. And some people, you know, they get, you talked about with your conversations with Josh Eiler, some people ending up answering the question, well, I don't see it mattering anymore and wanting to make some changes, but I keep, you know, waking up and being inspired and certainly discouraged sometimes too. But I mean, overall, I'm still at this, still at this and um, excited about where education is headed while also continually wanting us to be better. Well, I know I need to let us both go to a second. Do you have time for one more question? Oh, yeah. yeah. Great. So, okay, what is the most surprising thing you've learned or moment from the last year-ish of your podcast? When I think back to the last year, there's nothing necessarily. <laughs> it's kind of one of those, everything was surprising and nothing was surprising in the sense of, despite all of the collective trauma that we've experienced, it still comes back to some fundamental questions. So I'm thinking about so many episodes that I've done about artificial intelligence, so many about mental health and these challenges. Yet those things have existed, those challenges that why, why, do, why do those feel, why did those issues feel so overwhelming to us? That's been there all along a sense of identity and care, wanting to show up in our work in caring ways, caring not necessarily being enough, though also wanting to challenge. I got to speak to Sarah Rose Kavanaugh. She recently released a book, Mind Over Monsters, about youth mental health. And it's part memoir and part research. And she talks about compassionate challenge. And I thought there's really no better way than to explain my sense of mission in teaching that I I like to have it be challenging. You know, and that's that's been another thread too. It hasn't come up as much in the last year, but certainly throughout the podcast that people's preferences, all of us, not just students, all of us, our preferences are not always the best for us. So Robert Talbert has done a bunch of research around student preferences on types of video resources that are available in their classes, and then which ones they actually used in online class. I mean, there's a fascinating look. So I, we have to be careful not to be condescending and to recognize all of us, what we prefer can often be different. This comes up in the whole body of research around retrieval practice. So a lot of people would prefer to sit back in their chairs and listen to a good story and a great lecture and hear from a charismatic, dynamic person all day long they will pick that and not pick the thing where they fail and get something wrong. And it's hard. And, and it's challenging. Talk to the, yeah. Yes. Talk to the person next to them. You want me to talk to the person next to me. You know, this is how I feel too. I'm always like, where's the back row, you know, that kind of thing. And, but yet that leads to both building those relationships, which will be far superior than the isolation and that also leads to deeper learning when we struggle. Uh, Robert Bjork out of UCLA, he runs a memory lab up there and he talks about forgetting is the friend of learning. How much their research shows that if you forget something, but then you are able to remember it and have, you know, what was the right answer? It's able to be 
fairly quickly brought into your mind. It creates those tighter neural connections. And every time I tell this story, I always start chuckling because I was invited to speak at the University of Houston. And I'm standing there in front of hundreds of people and I can't remember Robert Bjork's name. Guess what, Jeff Young? That's never happened to me ever since that day. But it's like, did I love standing up? And it wasn't a huge deal. But did I love that I decided to very publicly be reminded that forgetting is a friend of learning. But it, I mean, it works. It actually works. But we wouldn't sign up for that. That would not be my preference. You know what I'd love to do is totally embarrass myself in front of people. You know, oh, I, I can relate to all of this. I, so, but yeah, but now you've got that name. You're not gonna. You're not gonna lose it. Oh, never. And I mean, it's the same thing for students who come into the classes. So I do think compassionate challenge. That's going to help in terms of the mental health, knowing that someone cares about you, that you matter. There's a lot of incredible research coming from Peter Felton about mattering, even perhaps being a more important framework for us to think about than a sense of belonging, because a sense of belonging could also mean a a sense of assimilation. So if you're going to, if, for example, maybe you work at a predominantly white institution and you would like a student of color to have a sense of belonging, sometimes that is inadvertently a, would you become more like the dominant culture here as opposed to mattering? So that's another interesting thing, but compassionate challenge, uh, the, the mental health issues that are coming up, the ways in which artificial intelligence makes us ask so many questions who we are, who we are as writers and thinkers, what does writing actually mean? And why why does it matter to our sense of learning and identity? I mean, there's so many questions. So you've asked the impossible question. Um, I can tell you, like I said, the most popular downloaded episode, but uh, not necessarily, I, I've been surprised, I guess, with every AI interview, because I'm just learning I'm learning, oh, and the new way to look at it over here. And I have never thought about that. Every question that I ask, the answer is, oh my gosh, like, and that it was a lot that way reading uh, Brian Christensen's book, Brian Christian's book too, about, about the alignment problem, which is about artificial intelligence. Yeah, so many mind bending ideas around the ways that that technology is threatening us, and also has these incredible possibilities and everything in between. That's great. Well, honestly, I feel like we could just, I could just do this all day. I'm enjoying it so much, but I, I think we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. And, but I do hope we can do this again um, because this is, it's so fun to just kind of compare stories and notes and, and hear all the wisdom you've gained from the interviews you do. Um, so thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, hopefully any place you're looking for podcasts. We're going to be doing a couple live tapings of the podcast at the upcoming ISTE Live conference. That is the big event held by our parent organization, although EdSurge maintains editorial independence from them. If you're going to be at that show, please look for us there. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung and online at JeffYoung.net. Editing help this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.